Good morning. I'm so glad that you are here this morning because I want to take you back in time a little bit, all the way back to 1999. Uh, Some of you may not have been alive then. Maybe you were really young. It's been a while. Uh, 1999 was definitely a year. Um, The euro was introduced in the European Union, standardizing currency all across Europe. Barbie celebrated her 40th birthday which she's probably still staying, she's still 40, but The Matrix, think of this, The Matrix came out in 1999. The last one came out last December. And if you're a certain age, on May 1st of 1999, SpongeBob SquarePants debuted on Nickelodeon. The New York Yankees won their 25th World Series, and um, our youngest son, he was born in 1999. He'll be 23 this Saturday, which makes me feel very old. Um, other than that, one of the highlights for that year, for me, was on May 2019, it was May 19th that year. On May 19th, 1999, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, came out in theaters. And I was one of those sad people camped out in front of the movie theater out in Erlanger that's not there anymore, waiting for the midnight showing. Not my proudest moment, but I was there. We'd even been singing about partying like it's 1999 for over 15 years at that point. But 1999 came, and we had people determined that the world was going to end, that, that there were going to be bad things happen. I mean, every time a century changes, you have the people, it's the end. But well, this was a millennium, so uh, you, you, people were coming out of the woodwork. And, and part of that was a computer glitch. I won't say a bug. Uh, If you weren't around then, Y2K, it was a big deal. Um, Computing was at such a different point than it is today. I I, I think of this, a state-of-the-art computer at the time uh, had a four gigabyte hard drive and 32 megabytes of RAM. Just to give you an idea, my phone My phone has four gigabytes of RAM and 120 gigabytes of storage. Um, Big difference. See, computers were so different at that time. Everything was done to conserve space. Um, They even took shortcuts to say, well, we're going to cut years down from four digits to two. So instead of saying 1999, it just said 99. So there was a problem. And everybody was worried about it, that would the computers think it's going back to 1900? Would they go to 2000? What's going to happen? People were were scared. People were worried. I mean, there was even thoughts that um, our economy would collapse, that banking would go out, power, utilities, everything, airlines, everything was just going to shut down. People expected the worst. Some prepared for the worst. I would say that that was maybe the last time that I stayed up until midnight, but I can't (laughs) because there are certain people that if you get on the phone with that they might, I'm not naming names, but I'm just going to say they're sitting over to my left. Um, (laughs) Next thing I know, it's 1230. I'm like, I get up at 430. Sorry, Mark. Um, (laughs) Well, midnight came. The world didn't end. Um, Life went on as usual. See, sometimes what we expect to happen and what really does occur are two completely different things. Sometimes our expectations for an event 
are the complete opposite of what does occur. And that's similar to what occurred on a Sunday some 2,000 years ago. Uh, the events and the things that people wanted to happen, expected to happen, didn't quite go to plan during that week. Now, before we take up our, our story, our passage for this morning, we need to get a little insight into that very first Palm Sunday. To begin with, Jesus, he's here. He's at the end of this journey. Um, he'd begun this journey nine months prior. He's purposefully zigzagging throughout the area, through Galilee, through Samaria, through Perea, and finally going into Judea. And during this final journey, he administered in at least 35 different neighborhoods, timing it so that he would end up in Jerusalem for the Passover. And now he's back in Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Expectations among the people, they were running high. Not long ago, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. People were talking about news had spread all over the country. The number of people who were taking notice of this Jesus was growing. More recently, just a few days prior, he had healed Bartimaeus, gave him his uh, sight back. People were telling about this. It was all over. And now as he's staying in Bethany, crowds were coming to see him. People were expecting. They wanted to see Lazarus. This guy was dead and now he's alive. And the religious leaders, they were plotting how they could kill him. Because the people were starting to believe in Jesus and moving away from their authority. There was an unparalleled tension in Jerusalem. No one, not, not even the oldest among them, had ever seen anything like this ever before in their lives. Wherever you went, whether you went to the marketplace, in the doorways, in the temple, people were talking. Everyone was talking about Jesus. The Passover... It's just a few days away. Was Jesus, was he going to make his move? Was he, and if he did, what, what, what would happen? What would the authorities do? So as the pressure mounted, Jesus took definite, calculated, and premeditated action. So I want to pray, and we'll read our text for this morning. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to spend time together, gather together as your people. Uh, Father, thank you that we're able to worship you the way that we do, uh, that we know that you came into this world just for us. Father, I pray as we study your word this morning um, that we come closer to you, that we know you better, and we seek to live our lives in obedience to your word and your commands. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he did enter into Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. And he did what he did all for us. Lord, thank you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 11, starting in the first verse, our text says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. 
And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The first thing that I want to look at this morning, I want us to look at the king's preparation. Let's look at the king's preparation. So as, as, picture this. As they're approaching Jerusalem, as they're getting into town, Jesus sends two of his disciples. He says, go up into that village ahead of us, and you're going to find a colt. It's tied up. No one's ever ridden on it. Untied. I want you to bring it back here to me. And, and if anybody asks, what are you doing? Tell them that the Lord needs it, and we'll return it shortly. So they went, and they went into the town, and they find a colt. It's tied up in the street, and they did as they were instructed, and someone asked, what do you think you're doing? Why are you taking that cold? It's not yours. And I mean, think of this. The people standing there, they'd never seen Jesus' disciples before. They didn't know these guys from Adam and not you. They didn't care enough to stop them from taking the cold, but they knew something was happening out of the ordinary that might not I mean, it's like taking somebody's car out of their driveway. <laughs> the disciples, they answered as Jesus told them. People let him go. The Lord needs this, and we'll bring it back when he's done. Bethphage, it was a little village between Jerusalem and Bethany. And if you approach Jerusalem uh, from the east, coming from Jericho like Jesus did, you would come to Bethany about two miles away. And as you rounded the corner, as you rounded the south side of the Mount of Olives, you'd pass by Bethphage before you came into Jerusalem proper. And on that day, that first Palm Sunday, Jesus was walking in front of his disciples when they came to Bethphage. And that's where he sent those two disciples to find that colt. Now, how he knew it was there, Scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe the disciples told him, maybe we don't know. Maybe it was revealed by the Father. But in all of this, we see Jesus' painstaking preparation. He had carefully ordered everything. The day, the hour, they were all selected from the beginning of time with the countdown perfection, not like what happened this morning. The triumphal entry on the first day of the week, it would precipitate his terrible death on Good Friday, his time in the grave on the Sabbath, and his triumphant resurrection on the first day of the church. Not only the time of his entry, but his method, riding on an, on an unridden donkey, it was carefully chosen. He was purposefully going public with who he was. Never before had he done anything to promote a public demonstration. In fact, every time people would start coming and crowds would form, what did he do? He'd withdraw. But this time, he's inviting the attention. And he was doing it with a calculated purpose. 
Why did he choose a young donkey? Because, well, 500 years previously, Zechariah had prophesied the Messiah would come that way. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout ahead, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation, is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus intentionally fulfilled this prophecy to the letter, and he even exceeded what it had predicted. He chose a colt that no one had ever sat on, and that was part because in biblical culture, an animal that was devoted to sacred uses could never have been put to an ordinary use. And Jesus says, you're going to find that colt tied up in Bethphage. And it almost points to the messianic prophecy by Jacob in Genesis. Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal, tied Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Understand that Christ, Christ the lion of the tribe of Judah, wants us to see the connections that he's making here. By riding a donkey, he's not only fulfilling the prophecy, but he's riding a donkey Contrary to what we think today, it was a kingly act. It identified him with the royal line of David. Uh, the donkey, it was a royal animal during David's reign. And after him, Jewish kings switched to the horse and the donkey was considered not good enough for a king. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was fulfilling the Old Testament messianic prophecies, identifying himself with the royal line of Judah. Matthew tells us that the colt was with its mother, and the disciples, they're told to bring both of them, maybe to help that young donkey not have a panic attack. And the owners don't even question the disciples after they're told that it was for Christ. They'd probably heard of Jesus. They were probably happy to help him. They gladly gave him what rightfully belonged to him anyway. And my guess is that they felt so much joy, so much happiness, that Jesus would want to use something of theirs. But that's the key to giving, isn't it? It, it, it's when we realize that everything that we've been given, that God's given it to us, that God is the ultimate owner of everything that we have, that's when we move and we make that change from getting all that we can to giving all that we can give. Think of it, Jesus, Jesus was born in a borrowed manger. He, he taught from a borrowed boat. He borrowed the upper room for the Last Supper. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And now he wants to borrow a burrow. 
You don't often read in Scripture that Jesus needed anything. But he needed that donkey. Let me ask, what do you have that you can give him? The truth is, everything that we have is borrowed from him in the first place. And if he wants something, it's his anyway. And it should be our joy to give it back to him. Jesus' choice of a donkey told the whole world who he is, who he was. But it also proclaimed what he was like. Zechariah's prophecy, it described Jesus as being gentle, that he was humble, that he was riding on a donkey. Jesus, he came peacefully to bring peace to a war-torn world. 750 years old, earlier, G Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would come as the Prince of Peace. And, and when he was born, the angels, they said, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. And on that Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on an animal of peace. Jesus had told his, his disciples, his followers, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He also said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. In Matthew 5, 3, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is unlike any other king that has ever lived. He, how unlike he is to the Alexanders, the Napoleons, and the Caesars of the world. What a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient kings where they would ride in on their war horse, riding proudly through the gates of the city, head lifted high, sword held up, a trail of prisoners behind them. And Jesus slowly, purposefully came riding the colt of a donkey. Understand that Jesus was in control of every single detail that day. As he rode past the Roman pomp, the Roman power, headed towards the Jewish temple. His riding of the donkey perfectly portrayed his position as the Messiah, as his person, the Prince of Peace, the humble and gentle, see your king. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, riding, gentle and riding on the foal of a donkey. So we see the king's preparation. The next thing I want us to look at this morning is the king's entry. Let's look at the king's entry. So he gets the donkey. He's riding it in. The triumphal march begins. And many people, they spread their cloaks on the road. Others are spreading branches that they had cut in the fields. Every eye is focused on Jesus. Not only did people put their clothing on the donkey as a saddle, some were even throwing them on the ground showing their reverence, showing their willingness to, for him to have everything, even if he trampled their property, if he wanted. 
And it tells us they did this repeatedly as that procession, as it moved forward. And there was just this swelling, mounting joy. And as Jesus rode up toward the ridge where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, even more people joined him. And when they reached the spot, when they reached the spot where they caught a glimpse of the city with its terraces, with its towers, and its finery, they broke into praise. And these Hebrews were on holiday. Mark says that those who went ahead and those who followed shouted. And, and it, was pro- it was a responsive chant between those in front of Jesus and those behind him. And some scholars, they suggested that it went like this. The first group, they yelled out, Hosanna! And the second group said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And the first group would respond back, Hosanna in the highest. One of the lines that's repeated regularly and mentioned in all four Gospels is from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was often used as a greeting to the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. But in this situation, it fits Jesus perfectly. Luke also has them saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's almost like the crowds are caught in this mass prophetic ecstasy as they moved along the slopes of the Mount of Olives. The other gospel accounts add the Mark's picture of joy. John says, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Now a palm branch, it represented their nationalistic desire. It, it represented their desire to be delivered. When Simon Maccabeus uh, delivered Jerusalem 150 years prior to this, it was celebrated with praise, with palm branches and musical instruments. The palm branch was actually the symbol of the, sa- of the second Maccabean revolt. And Hosanna... It was the customary religious greeting at Passover. But on the lips of this passionate crowd, it was filled with anticipation. Do you you know what Hosanna literally means? It means save. They're saying, save us. Hosanna, save us. The people watching Jesus head to Jerusalem, shouting over and over again that Jesus was their deliverer. Save us! Hosanna! And not even the disciples understood the significance of what they were saying. It was only after Jesus was glorified that his followers put it all together. Jesus was in control. He was making a statement with their words. The donkey he rode on, it prophesied of of his position, of his person. In the psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, repeated his messianic character. And all of those hosannas would describe his work. This was his moment. 
the last thing I want us to look at this morning is the king's tears. I want us to look at the king's tears. The road, the road down to Jerusalem, it descends into a hollow, and the side of the city w- w- was withdrawn from the multitudes between the ridge, uh, because of the ridge in front of them. But after a few moments walking, the path goes back up, it mounts back up, and in an instant, the entire city, not just part of it, burst into view. And Jesus saw that holy city with the temple courts, with its great temple tower, all framed by the gardens in the suburbs of the western plateau behind. And with the whole city in front of his eyes, the Savior started weeping. And we should never forget this. It wasn't with quiet tears that he cried. As he'd done at the grave of Lazarus, he, he wept with loud and deep sorrow over Jerusalem. There, right in front of him, in the middle of the road, with the great city before him, the stunned crowds stopped their hosannas and heard the Lord of the universe cry over the city of Jerusalem. This is some new kind of king. Jesus' weeping turned to mourning. And Luke records his words. Luke chapter 19, verses 42 to 44. Jesus said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and he sees this proud, unrepentant city Reduced to a pile of rubble, wet with the blood of his people. And 40 years later, it all came true under Titus's Roman legions. The, the Jewish resistance was so fierce that Titus, he finally just orders his legions, just enclose the walls of Jerusalem with a barricade, starve them out. And that famine made Jerusalem into a graveyard. And when the Jews lacked the strength to bury their dead, they would cast them over the walls into the surrounding ravines. So great was the destruction that toward the end, Josephus, the the Jewish historian, records, when Titus, going his rounds, beheld these valleys choked with dead, he groaned and raising his hands to the heavens, called God to witness that this was not his doing. Such was the situation of the city. And Josephus goes on telling of the final destruction of the city. This is what he wrote. Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the loftiest of the towers. 
and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west. The latter is an encampment for the garrison that was to remain in the towers to indicate to posterity the nature of the city and of the strong defenses which had not yet yielded to Roman prowess. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Such was the end to which the frenzy of revolutionaries brought Jerusalem, that splendid city of worldwide renown. Jesus saw all of this, and he wept. This is the heart of a new kind of king. Jesus' sorrow showed his humanity, but it was also a revelation of the heart of God. Uh, fix this in your minds. This is how Jesus, this is how Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, how they sorrow over hearts that miss their day, that would bring them peace. This is how they feel about repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. As your, heart, as, as your life stands right now, what does Jesus see in your future? Does he see judgment? Does he see your towers pulled down? Does he see desolation? Understand that the tears of Christ measure the infinite value of your soul. Christ, he wept and he mourned over Jerusalem, just as he always weeps over all the unrepentant. Today, maybe your expectations are set too high. Maybe they're set too low. Maybe you don't have any expectations. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Everybody was doing fine when he went there, but he knew what the future held. And he knows what your future holds if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior. And he weeps over that. Not just a single tear, but that deep sorrow and pain. As the worship team comes this morning, do you know Christ as your Savior. Jesus Christ triumphantly entered into Jerusalem for us, for everyone that would someday profess their faith in Him. It was a horrible week. It started so well. Crowds cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us! And before that week ended, Jesus was nailed to a cross, killed and buried. It's good we know the end of the story, because that grave did not hold him. Because on that third day, God the Father raised Jesus the Son back to life, showing his power over life and death, and showing that our sins could be forgiven. Romans 10.9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved.
I don't want to think of Jesus weeping over my soul, of being unrepentant, of not knowing him the way I should. This morning, as we sing a song of invitation, I encourage you, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, to take that step, knowing that what he did for you, that it will change everything for your future. And if you do know Christ, and, and, and you did cry out, save me, and you wander, he's still waiting for you to come back. He's still waiting to use you. Like the people who gave him a donkey, what can you give him? Your service, your talents, your time, your treasure because he will use anything that you bring to him. I want to pray this morning, and I encourage you, don't leave here without knowing the Lord of the universe and the only one who can save your soul. I'm going to pray. If you need to come, I encourage you to do that this morning. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for what he's done for us. Thank you for just being how great you are. And Lord, I just pray, I pray today for, for those that are here, for those who are struggling, for those that don't know you, that Lord, the only true change that will ever happen in this world will be because people come to you and surrender to you. And that's what I pray for today. Because that shouting stopped on Palm Sunday. The cries of Hosanna changed to cries of crucify him. But that was your plan all along. And even those who fell away, you restored. Just like you will when we wander. Father, I pray for you to be glorified. And that men, women, and children are drawn to you through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.